Section 8 of Rameau's Nephew. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Rameau's Nephew by Denis Diderot. Translated by Ian C. Johnston. Section 8. Me. I know these methods. You've told me about them, and I admired them a lot. But with such resources, why haven't you attempted creating a fine work of art? Him. That's what a man of the world said to Abbe Leblanc. The Abbe replied, The Marquise of Pompadour takes me by the hand, leads me right to the threshold of the academy, and there she removes her hand. I fall down and break both my legs. The man of the world answered him, All right, Abbe, you must get up and bash in the door with your head. The Abbe replied, That's what I tried to do, and do you know what happened to me? I got a bump on my forehead. After this little story, my man began to move around with his head held down in a pensive and demoralized expression. He sighed and wept. He was upset. Raising his hands in his eyes, he banged his head with his fist, hard enough to break his forehead or his fingers, and he added, It seems to me that there could be something in there. But no matter how hard I knock or shake it, nothing emerges. Then he began shaking his head and hitting his forehead again even more firmly, saying, Either no one is in there, or they won't answer. A moment later he took on a proud attitude. He raised his head laid his right hand over his heart, walked along, and said, I feel, yes, I do feel. He imitated for me a man who was getting annoyed, who was indignant, who was feeling moved, who was issuing orders, who was begging. He improvised speeches of anger, sympathy, hatred, love. He sketched out passionate characters with a surprising delicacy and fidelity. Then he added, That's it, I think. It's coming along. That's what it is to find a midwife who knows how to stimulate and bring on the labor pains and make the child emerge. When I'm alone, I take up my pen, intending to write. I bite my nails. I wear out my forehead. No good. Good night. The god is absent. I'd persuaded myself that I had some genius. But at the end of a line, I read that I am a fool. A fool. A fool. But how does one feel, raise oneself, think, or describe anything with energy when one hangs out with people like those it's necessary to see in order to live? In the midst of the comments one makes and hears and gossip like this. Today the boulevard was charming. Did you hear little Marmotte? She played enchantingly. Mr. Someone or other has the most beautiful dappled greys in harness you could ever imagine. As for lovely Madame So-and-so, she's beginning to get past it. At the age of forty-five, does one have one's hair done like that? That young what's-her-name is covered with diamonds which didn't cost her much. You mean to say it cost her a lot? Not at all. Where did you see her? At l'enfant d'Arlequin perdue et retrouve. The scene of despair was acted out as never before. The punch at the fair can really shout but has no finesse, no soul. Madame such-and-such -such has given birth to two children at once. Each father will have his own. 
Do you think stuff like that spoken, repeated, and heard every day inspires and leads to great things? Me. No. It would be more worthwhile to shut yourself up in your attic, drink water, eat dry bread, and find your real self. Him. Perhaps. But I don't have the courage for that. And then, to sacrifice one's happiness for an uncertain success. And what about the name I carry? Ramo. To be called Ramo. That's embarrassing. Talent is not like nobility, which can be passed on, and whose luster increases as it goes from grandfather to father, from father to son, from son to grandson, without the grandparents requiring his descendant to have any merit. The old stock branches out into an enormous line of fools. But who cares? It's not like that with talent. In order to acquire nothing more than the reputation of one's father, it's necessary to be more skilled than he is. You have to have inherited his fiber. I lack the fiber. But my wrist is flexible. The bow moves, and the pot boils. If it's not glory, well, it's food. Me. In your place, I wouldn't assume it's all said and done with. I'd make an attempt. Him. And you think I haven't tried? I wasn't fifteen years old when I first said to myself, What are you up to, Ramo? You're dreaming. And what are you dreaming about? That you'd like to have done, or to do something which excites the admiration of the universe. Well then, you just have to blow on your fingers and wiggle them. Just get started, and you'll be there. At a more advanced age, I repeated what I'd said to myself in my childhood. Today, I'm still repeating it. And I'm standing by the statue of Memnon. Me. What do you mean, talking about the statue of Memnon? Him. That's obvious enough, it seems to me. Around the statue of Memnon, there were numberless other statues which the sun's rays struck just as much. But Memnon's statue was the only one which produced a sound. Who's a poet? Well, there's Voltaire. And who else? Voltaire. And a third? Voltaire. And a fourth? Voltaire. And musicians? There's Rinaldo de Capua, Hasse, Pergolesi, Alberti, Tartinin, Locatelli, Terradoglius. There's my uncle. And a little Duny, who's nothing to look at, no figure, but who feels, my God, who has melody and expression. The others around this small number of Memnons are just so many pairs of ears stuck on the end of sticks. And we're beggars. So poor, it's a miracle. Oh, Mr. Philosopher, poverty is a terrible thing. I see her crouching there, with her mouth gaping open to receive a few drops of icy cold water dripping from the barrel of the Danaids. I don't know if she sharpens the mind of the Philosopher, but she has a devilish way of cooling off the head of a poet. People don't sing well under this barrel. The man who can get himself under it is only too lucky. I was there, and I didn't know how to keep my place. I'd already done that stupid thing once before. I'd been traveling in Bohemia, Germany, Switzerland, Holland, Flanders, all over the damned country. Me. Under the leaky barrel. Him. Under the leaky barrel. The man was a rich Jew who was happy to splash his money around. He liked music, 
and my silly jokes. I played music just the way that made God happy, and I played the fool. I didn't lack anything. My Jew was a man who understood his law, and who observed it strictly in every detail, sometimes with a friend, always with strangers. He got himself in bad trouble, which I must tell you about, because it's amusing. In Utrecht there was a charming prostitute. He was attracted to this Christian, and sent her a messenger with quite a large letter of credit. This strange creature rejected his offer. The Jew grew desperate. The messenger told him, Why are you so upset by this? You want to sleep with a good-looking woman. Nothing is easier. Even to sleep with one more beautiful than the one you're chasing. That's my wife. I'll let you have her for the same price. No sooner said than done. The messenger keeps the letter of credit, and my Jew sleeps with a messenger's wife. The due date for the letter of credit arrives. The Jew allows the letter to be challenged, and disputes its validity. A trial. The Jew tells himself, The man will never dare to reveal what right he has to possess my letter, and I'll not have to pay him. At the hearing he interrogates the messenger. This letter of credit, who did you get it from? From you. Is it for a loan? No. Is it for the sale of merchandise? No. Is it for services rendered? No, but that's not the point. I'm in possession of the letter. You signed it, and you can discharge it. I didn't sign it. So then I'm a forger. You or someone else who you're acting for. I'm a coward, but you're a scoundrel. Believe me, don't push me to the limit. I'll tell everything. I'll dishonor myself, but I'll sink you. The Jew paid no attention to the threat, and at the next hearing, the messenger revealed the entire affair. They were both reprimanded, and the Jew was condemned to pay off the letter of credit, and the money was applied to the relief of the poor. At that point I left him and came back here. What was I to do? I had to do something, or die of poverty. All sorts of plans went through my head. One day, I was going to leave tomorrow to join up with a troop traveling through the provinces. I'd be equally good or bad in the theater or in the orchestra. The next day, I was dreaming of getting someone to paint for me one of those pictures attached to a pole which people set up in a public crossroad, where I'd have shouted my head off. There's the town where he was born. Here he is leaving his father the apothecary. Here he is arriving in the capital, looking for his uncle's residence. Here he is on his knees before his uncle, who is chasing him away. Here he is with a Jew and so on and so on. The next day, I'd get up, firmly resolved to join up with the street singers. That's not the worst thing I could have done. We could have gone to give a concert under my dear uncle's windows. He'd have collapsed with rage. But I chose something else. At that point he stopped and assumed, in succession, the pose of a man who's holding a violin, turning his arms to tighten the strings and then the pose of a poor devil worn out with exhaustion, with no energy, whose limbs wobbled, ready to die if someone didn't throw him a piece of bread. He showed his extreme need with the gesture of a finger pointing towards his half-open mouth. Then he added, You see what I mean. They'd toss me the loaf, and three or four of us, all famished, would fight over it. So go on then. Think grand thoughts. Create beautiful things in an environment of such distress. Me. That's difficult. Him. From one tumble to the next, 
I fell into that job. I was in Clover. Now I've left it. Now I have to scrape the gut once again and come back to that gesture with my finger pointing towards my gaping mouth. Nothing's very stable in this world. Today at the top of the wheel, tomorrow at the bottom. Damned circumstances lead us along. And lead us really badly. Then, drinking up what remained at the bottom of the bottle, he spoke to the man next to him. Sir, would you be so good as to give me a pinch of snuff? That's a lovely box you have there. Are you a musician? No. All the better for you, for they're poor buggers, a pitiful bunch. Destiny wanted me to be a musician, while in a mill in Montmartre, there's perhaps a miller or a miller's helper who never listens to anything but the sound of the ratchet, but who'd have made up some fine songs. Rabo, go to the mill. The mill, that's where you belong. Me. Whatever a man devotes himself to, nature has destined him for that. Him. She makes some strange blunders. In my case, I'm not looking down from that height where everything merges into one, where the man who prunes a tree with cutters and the caterpillar who eats the leaves seems nothing but two different insects, each doing his own work. Go and perch on the epicycle of Mercury, and from there, like Remur, who classifies flies into seamstresses, surveyors, and harvesters, you can divide up the human species into woodworkers, carpenters, roofers, dancers, singers, whatever you like. I won't get involved in it. I'm in the world, and I'm staying there. But if it's part of nature to have an appetite, for it's always appetite I come back to, to the feeling which is always present in me, I find that it's not part of a good order if one doesn't always have something to eat. It's a damnable economy, with men who cram themselves with everything, while others whose stomachs are just as demanding as theirs, and have a recurring hunger like theirs, have nothing to chew on. The worst thing is the way our need compels us to a certain posture. The man in need doesn't walk like another man. He jumps. He grovels. He wriggles. He crawls. He spends his life taking up and carrying out various positions. Me. What are those positions? Him. Go and ask Navarre. The world offers many more positions than his art can imitate. Me. So there you are too, if I can use your expression, or rather Montaigne's, perched on the epicycle of Mercury, contemplating the different pantomimes of the human species. Him. No, no, I'm telling you. I'm too heavy to raise myself so high. Those misty regions I leave to the cranes. I move around from one piece of earth to another. I look around me, and I take up my positions. Or, I amuse myself with positions which I have derived from others. I'm an excellent mimic, as you're going to see. Then he begins to smile. To imitate a man admiring, begging, obliging. He sets his right foot forward, his left behind. With his back bent over, his head raised, with his gaze looking directly into another person's eyes, his mouth half open, his arms stretched out towards some object. He waits for his orders. He receives them. He dashes off, comes back. He's done the job and is giving an account of it. He attends to everything. He picks up what falls down. He puts a pillow or a footstool under someone's feet. He holds a saucer. He goes up to a chair. He opens a door. He closes a window, he pulls the curtains, 
he observes the master and mistress. He is immobile, his arms hanging down, his legs lined up straight. He listens. He seeks to read what's on their faces. And he continues, That's my pantomime. Almost the same as what flatterers, prostitutes, valets, and beggars do. The antics of this man, the stories of Abbe Galliani, and the extravagances of Rabelais sometimes force me to profound reflections. They are three stores where I have acquired for myself some ridiculous masks, which I put over the faces of the most serious people. I see Pantalon in a prelate, a satyr in a judge, a pig in a monk, an ostrich in a minister, and a goose in his first deputy. Me. But, by your count, there are lots of beggars in this world, and I don't know anyone who doesn't do some steps in that dance of yours. Him. You're right. In the entire kingdom, there's only one man who walks. That's the king. All the rest take up positions. Me. The king? Isn't there more to it than that? Don't you think that, from time to time, he finds beside him a little foot, a little curl, a little nose which makes him go through a small pantomime? Whoever needs someone else is a beggar and takes up a position. The king takes up a position before his mistress and before God. He goes through the paces of his pantomime. The minister goes through the paces of prostitute, flatterer, valet, or beggar in front of his king. The crowds of ambitious people dance your positions in hundreds of ways, each more vile than the others, in front of the minister. The noble abbe in his bands of office and his long cloak goes at least once a week in front of the agent in charge of the list of benefices. My goodness, what you call the pantomime of beggars is what makes the earth go round. Everyone has his little who and his bertie. Him. That's a great consolation. But while I was speaking, he was imitating in a killingly funny way the positions of the persons I was naming. For example, for the little abbe, he held his hat under his arm and his breviary in his left hand. In his right hand, he lifted up the train of his cloak. He came forward, with his head a little inclined toward his shoulders, his eyes lowered, imitating the hypocrite so perfectly that I believed I was looking at the author of the refutations appearing before the Bishop of Orléans. For the flatterers and for the ambitious, he crawled along on his belly, just like Bourret at the Ministry of Finance. Me. That's done extremely well. But there's one creature who can do without pantomime. That's the philosopher, who has nothing and who demands nothing. Him. Where's an animal like that? If he has nothing, he suffers. If he's not asking for anything, he'll get nothing, and he'll be suffering forever. Me. No. Diogenes mocked his needs. Him. Oh, but we have to have clothing. Me. No. He went about totally naked. Him. Sometimes the weather was cold in Athens. Me. Less so than here. Him. People eat there. Me. No doubt. Him. At whose expense? Me. At nature's. Where does the savage turn? To the earth, to animals, to fish, to trees, to grasses, to roots, to streams. Him. 
A bad menu. Me. It's a big one. Him. But badly served. Me. Still, it's nature's table that serves to cover our own. Him. But you'll admit that the work of our cooks, pastry cooks, sellers of roast meats, caterers, and confectioners adds something of our own to it. With the austere diet of your Diogenes, it wouldn't do to have organs that were easily upset. Me. But you're wrong. The habits of the cynic were the habits of our monks, with the same virtue. The cynics were the Carmelites and the Cordeliers of Athens. Him. I'll take you up on that. Diogenes also danced his pantomime, if not in front of Pericles, at least in front of Lay or Phryne. Me. You're wrong again. Other people used to pay a prostitute well who gave herself to him for pleasure. Him. But what happened if the prostitute was busy and the cynic was in a hurry? Me. He'd go back to his barrel and manage without her. Him. And you're advising me to imitate Diogenes? Me. I'll bet my life it's better than crawling, demeaning, and prostituting oneself. Him. But I need a good bed, a fine table, warm clothes in winter, cool clothing in summer, spare time, money, and lots of other things which I prefer to owe to charity than to acquire by work. Me. That's because you're a good-for-nothing, greedy coward, with a soul of mud. Him. I think I've told you that. Me. Things in life no doubt have a price, but you've no idea of the sacrifice you're making to obtain them. You dance, you have danced, and you'll continue to dance the vile pantomime. Him. It's true. But it hasn't cost me much and isn't costing me any more for all that. And that's the reason I'd be making a mistake to take some other way of getting along, which would bring me grief, and which I wouldn't keep up. But I see from what you've told me that my poor little wife was a sort of philosopher. She was as brave as a lion. Sometimes we didn't have any bread or any money. We'd sold just about all our old clothes. I'd throw myself at the foot of our bed and rack my brains to find someone who could lend me an aku which I wouldn't repay. She was as happy as a lark. She'd sit down at her keyboard and accompany herself while singing. She had a voice like a nightingale. I'm sorry you never heard her. When I had some concert to go to, I'd take her with me. On the way, I'd say to her, Come on then, madam. Make them look up to you. Display your talent and your charm. Up with you. Knock them out. We'd arrive. She'd sing. She'd rise to the occasion and knock them out. Alas, I lost her, the poor little thing. Apart from her talent, she had a small mouth, big enough to put your finger in. Her teeth were a row of pears. Her eyes, feet, skin, cheeks, breasts, limbs like a deer, thighs and buttocks all fit for a sculptor's model. Sooner or later, she'd have had the farmer general. What a walk she had! What a rump! Oh, God, what a rump! And there he was starting to imitate his wife's walk. He took little paces. He held his head high. He played with a fan. He wiggled his backside. It was the most agreeable and ridiculous caricature of our little prostitutes. Then, picking up the thread of his remarks, he added, 
I used to walk with her everywhere. To the Tuileries, to the Palais Royal, on the boulevards. It was impossible that she'd go on living with me. When she crossed the road in the morning without a hat and a really short skirt, you'd have stopped to look at her. And you could have encircled her waist in your fingers without pinching her. The men who followed her, who watched her mincing along on her small feet and measured that large rump, whose shape was outlined by her thin petticoats, walked more quickly. She'd let them come up. Then she'd turn around, suddenly confronting them with her two large, black, shining eyes. That stopped them in their tracks. For the front part of the medal was as good as the back. But alas, I lost her. And my hopes for a fortune have all vanished with her. That's the only reason I married her. I confided all my schemes to her. And she had too much intelligence not to see how right they were, and too much judgment not to approve of them. Then there he was, sobbing and crying, as he said, No, no, Ma'll never get over it. Ever since, I've taken to wearing bands and a skullcap. Me. From grief? Him. Oh, if you like. But the real reason is to have my bowl on my head. But look at the time. I have to go to the opera. Me. What's playing? Him. Something by Dauvergne. There are quite a few fine things in his music. It's a pity that he wasn't the first to write them. There are always a few dead people who upset the living. That's just the way it is. Quisque suos patumur manes. Each of us has ancestors we must endure. It's half past five. I hear the bell sounding for vespers for the Abbe de Canaille and for me. Farewell, Mr. Philosopher. Isn't it true that I'm always the same? Me. Alas, yes. Unfortunately. Him. Well, I hope this misfortune keeps going for only another forty years. The man who will laugh last will laugh best. End of section 8. End of Rameau's Nephew by Denis Diderot. Translated by Ian C. Johnston.